0: The following interview was recorded in 2022. Hey guys, welcome back to yet another edition of the Red Wall Podcast. I'm your host, per usual. My name is Marcelo D'Astroza, and I'd like to welcome you to episode number 97, entitled The Crew Member. All right, guys, well, in this edition of the show, I was very lucky and fortunate to have an opportunity to speak to an actual crew member who happened to work on my favorite show of all time, Dawson's Creek. As a matter of fact, he worked on the show for the first four seasons. With that being said and out of the way, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Craig Edwards. Welcome to the Red Wall, Craig. It's a pleasure to have you here.
1: Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Craig is a very unique individual in that he has a very unique insight into my favorite show of all time. Before we get to that, I just uh, want to know a little bit about you.
1: I went to college for it and got a degree, a Bachelor of Arts in film production, and waited for some other friends who were a year behind me to get out. And then we all moved to Wilmington, North Carolina. At the time, it seemed Uh, a very optimal place to get a start in the film industry without the incredible competition of New York or California or Florida, which were the other three big hubs. And Wilmington was coming back from a period, it had been a a major hub in the 80s with Dino De Laurentiis, and then it kind of died out when he lost the studio. But Carolco, the company that made Total Recall of the Rambo movies, Bought the studio in the late 80s, and by the early 90s, when I moved down, um, it was picking back up again, and there were there were productions happening here. So I moved down in the beginning of 1992 and put in resumes on various TV movies and the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles and some other shows that were shooting here. I wasn't having any luck um, getting in even for interviews because there were so many already working production assistants, which is kind of where you usually start. But one day, a connection I had made, a guy named Chuck. Uh, I stopped by to see him to see if he had any news of any new productions coming in, and he said, there's a a show that's going to need a lot of extras, and I know the extras casting person, Pam, and if you want to go over there, I'll uh, call her and put in a word for you. And I said, yeah, absolutely. So I went to the studio and signed up for a movie called Amos and Andrew which was a Nicolas Cage, Samuel L. Jackson comedy that nobody remembers. And I was an extra in it, and I'm glimpseful in one shot, 10 seconds on screen. But it was several weeks of work, and I met an assistant director on the show named Cindy Williams, not the lady who played Shirley in *Laverne and Shirley, a different Cindy Williams. But um, she liked my get-up-and-go. I was trying to be helpful to her um, various ways just as an extra. And she introduced me to her boyfriend who was our caterer one evening and said, uh, this is Craig Edwards and I'm going to hire him on my next movie. And her next movie was a large film shooting here called super Mario brothers, early nineties, Bob Hoskins, John Leguizamo science fiction movie. And she made good on her promise. I started on it as an extra, uh, in Dino Hatton. And then, um, that show ran over so many weeks because it was a crazy movie um she had the opportunity to finally hire me and i ended up doing several different units working as a production assistant when one would no longer have need of me one of the other units would would keep me on i worked on that for months and that got me in and that's all it really took once you got in and i knew some people
0: always to come down to Wilmington just to be an assistant or were you like intending to, like, I want to be an actor.
1: No, no, I never really, uh, there's a ham in me that, you know, um, I've appeared in a few things, but it's, I've never wanted the competition and I've never had thick skin enough to be able to take the, the criticism that can come uh, when you're trying to be an actor. So that was never my intent. Um, And, and when you say assistant, Want to make clear that you know there are assistants who work that get coffee for people, actors and directors, there. So they are actors' assistants, director's assistants. But what I'm talking about is a whole different ballgame because a production assistant is one of the minions of the assistant directors. There is a huge difference between director's assistant and assistant director. Uh, director's assistant, like I said, gets coffee and runs errands, the assistant director, though, runs the set for the uh, for the director. So the first assistant director spends the pre-production time scheduling out what's going to shoot when and sets that all up and and lays out the schedule and then when the show starts shooting he goes to set and runs the set so he comes in runs the safety meeting in the morning gets the rehearsal going now the director does his part of that of course uh doing the actors you know interacting with the actors for their performances and talking with the director of photography about where the camera should go and all of that but around that, the assistant director, the first assistant director, is keeping everything moving forward and making sure that all of the departments are communicating and keeping that forward train, that motion to get everything in the can happening. So, um, And then the second assistant director is handling mm-hmm. the scheduling for the next day and the future days, and there's usually a second second assistant director who will often run the background. And then there are the production assistants. And I was usually, uh, after the first few shows, uh, either the key set production assistant or the first team production assistant. And by first team, that means that I coordinated the actors through makeup pair and wardrobe. So I would be the person that would greet them as they got out of the van in the morning. I would tell them, hey, you're needed in rehearsal immediately, or you should go get your wardrobe on, or you should go sit in the makeup chair, whatever it was. Um, so... You know, when you say assistant, I just want to be clear that I wasn't. Although I was a personal assistant a couple of times to an actor, uh, generally I was not a guy just running and getting coffee, per se. I had a little more uh, responsibility.
0: Yeah, I never imagined that you were a guy getting coffee, uh, <laughs> just just by just by, uh, you know, perusing your Instagram multiple times, seeing the amazing behind-the-sit photos that you have of My Favorite Show of All Time. I never imagined that you were a guy getting coffee. How did you become involved with My Favorite Show of All Time, Dawson's Creek?
1: I was working on a science fiction movie. Nothing, by the way, none of my stories ever start like on the first day of shooting. I was working on a big science fiction movie called Virus that uh, shot here with Jamie Lee Curtis and William Baldwin and Donald Sutherland, and uh, a huge bomb. I've worked on a lot of bombs. That show also went over a bit, and... Ended up taking me to Norfolk, Virginia. While all of that was going on, as we were kind of getting near the end of it, uh, a very small thing called a presentation pilot came to town. It's just a five-day shoot, which is very brief, one week, uh, one week's work. And my uh, one of my frequent uh, bosses, somebody who hired me a great deal, was a, a lady named Stefania Girolamy. Uh, she was then Stef- Stefania Girolami Goodwin. She did that presentation pilot as one of the assistant directors. I'm not sure if she was the first or the second because I wasn't on that show. I was still up in Virginia doing virus. But um, they did this little five-day shoot for some kind of a television pilot for something called Dawson's Creek. Who's in it? Nah, nobody really knows me. I think one of the Mighty Ducks. Eh, I don't know. Nobody was really in it. Nobody famous. And they shot it, and it, and they went away. And that shoot came on the tail end of. I Know What You Did Last Summer shooting here, which was also shooting at the same time in Southport. And there was a strange confluence of things that happened uh, because of that. Um, because those two movies and that presentation pilot all shot around the same time in Wilmington. Um, Michelle Williams ended up in Halloween H2O. How about that for a, a leap of events coming together? But anyway, um, Dawson's got picked up the presentation pilot was a go it was a shortened version of the pilot that you have seen the first episode uh it just was missing some of the scenes so when the show was picked up they knew they had to add to that so generally we were shooting 7 day shoot episodes so it would be you know seven shooting days but it were on 5 day weeks so your first episode shot monday through friday and then the next monday tuesday and then the next the next day that wednesday you started episode 2 and shot for 7 days again monday through friday that first episode though they knew they needed to add to the first uh, episode and then they wanted to shoot the second episode all together so it was a 10-day uh, first round of shooting and it was the missing pieces of the first episode and reshoots of the mitch scenes because it was a different actor who played mitch in the original presentation pilot There was also a different actor who played bodie now, they didn't have time and money to reshoot all of that, so they left Bodie as is, so he changes. That actor changes after the first episode. But Mitch, thank goodness, they uh, they ditched the guy. No idea who he was. We've all been trying to figure it out. He was not a hugely famous actor by any means. Um, you know, they didn't, they didn't kick Robert Redford out. It wasn't anything like that. Uh, but John Wesley Shipp came in, and you know, what a great performance, and what a great guy, so I was thrilled. But we picked up shooting in, uh, I think, August of 97. I always want to say it's July, but I think it was August. And the first day was uh, at a place called Head Road, which was where Dawson's house was. And we were shooting exteriors, and it was part of the monster movie shoot with um, Josh in the swamp creature outfit. Then Michelle shows up from the taxi or whatever it is. They had already shot that scene. So that part we didn't shoot that day, but she was there. I think there must have been some part of it that we shot because I know I met all four of them on that first day. And I was hired to run first team. So that was my job was to coordinate them through Make-A-Pair-Wardrobe and then keep track of them on set and sign them in and out for Screen Actors Guild purposes, which is very important paperwork. And I did that for, uh, that first season was 13 episodes. So that would have been, uh, 91 shooting days uh, across five-day weeks. So that's how many we shot from August to the end of December, and then premiered a couple of weeks later in January of '98.
0: You mentioned that you had to watch them while they were on set. Now, I imagine that these that Katie, uh, Michelle, Josh, and James were pretty well behaved. Like they didn't like. They weren't doing anything they weren't supposed to be doing, were they?
1: Um, No. Uh, I have worked on shows with actors who are flighty. Uh, There's a a man, not a very famous man, but he's been in some stuff. His name's Alex Van. And I love Alex to death, but good Lord, that guy could disappear on you. And so it was always, every time he came to work, you just had to hope, you know, he wasn't going to just completely disappear on. And I worked on Empire Records. That cast just, uh, oh, my God, I, I pulled two of them out of a, uh, a bar, a gay bar in uh, downtown Wilmington during the exterior record store shoot. I had lost them. No idea where they were. I was literally running around like a chicken with my head cut off looking for these two actors. And uh, one of the teamsters, one of the truck drivers, uh, saw me running around and said, that, are you looking for? I told him who it was. He said, I think I just saw him go into that bar up there. Sure enough, I walked in and they had just gotten served. And they were uh, one of them was of age and one was underage. And I grabbed them both by the ears and walked them out and walked them back to the set and told them, "Don't ever do that to me again." Uh, but no, the Dawson's cast was not like that. Um, you know, James had done the movie Angus and had appeared on Clarissa Explains It All, so he had a little bit of work under his belt. He'd done a lot of theater too. Um, Michelle had been in several. You know, she had done Lassie and uh, Time Master and several other films as a young actress katie um i feel like she had already done the ice storm pretty sure she had done that that was i think it for her up to that point and then josh of course was our first wild mighty duck i, I don't know i couldn't tell you between josh and michelle who had the most experience on you know before a camera they, they were pretty neck and neck but no they they knew the biz um, i didn't need to show them the ropes or anything else you know they knew to be in their trailer or on the set in their chair, they were not a problem for me at all. Uh, None of the cast was. In fact, I I very much adore all of them. Uh, Her and Meredith coming in season two, added to the fun, no problems with them. Mary Beth, Mary Margaret, and John, as the adults, uh, Nina, you know, all wonderful to work with. So uh, I adored this cast. I adored the job. The 22 episode seasons two, three, and four. I didn't work on seasons five or six for various reasons, but um, those first four seasons and the three that were 22 episodes. You know, that's 154 shooting days. We went from again July or August till March, April, something like that. So it was a long season, uh, 14 hour days generally. It's a good thing when you like your <laughs> your coworkers when you're together that much. You see them more than you see your family
0: as much as i would want to work on set i'm disabled so i'm i'm physically not able to work on set but just hearing you say like oh we used to be 14 hour i'm like 14 hour days are you kidding me
1: that <laughs> but, was just the average
0: but you know but like you say if you like your job and if you like the people that you work with those 14 hour days are probably easier to deal with when you have when when you're surrounded by people that you like
1: it's true um, i did a tv movie actress oh. famous for a 70s tv show one of the angels i did a tv movie with her and she was horrible and it was a oh, tough right. show because of that i did uh a margaret mitchell tv movie with shannon doherty oh shannon well she was a handful but you know she, i don't know it wasn't that bad in, in some respects mm-hmm. i knew how to deal with her uh, i i kept her in line as best i could and um uh, she yelled at me one time and uh, I folded up like a used map and she felt bad, but she petered out because she couldn't stay mad at me because when I fold up, I'm like a big teddy bear. And she just, she just petered out and said she was sorry and gave me a hug. So, you know, that's, it, you wouldn't have wanted to stand toe to toe to her and, and yell back. That wasn't going to get you anywhere. But if you just you know act like a whipped dog, that'll, that'll, you know, make her feel bad for yelling at you. So, um, yeah, not every show was great. And, and, you know, you talked about those 14 hour days I've worked on shows that were 15, 16 on average. I've worked on shows where you hit 18, a fair amount. And I've had for us those 10 years, I had two 22 hour days. Those were extraordinarily hard to work.
0: With. You mentioned at the start of our little interview here that, they had to recast the actor who played Mitch originally. I never knew about that. I always knew about Bodie's character getting recast, but I never knew about the Mitch character. Like, like, did were were you guys aware? Like on the first day, you were like, "Holy shit, we have a problem here. We need to we need to make a change." Or, or, or did that take like a couple days for you guys to come to that realization?
1: Well, that happened between the presentation pilot shoot, which I wasn't on. Remember, I didn't okay. come. To- till the regular series started right but um they shot those five days just assuming everything was fine and it was only when they got the footage back and put it all together and they looked at it and I, and I don't know who said it i don't know if it was one of the producers kevin williamson the wb i'm not sure who had the problem with the guy but they just didn't think he had the chemistry with uh, mary margaret you you know how passionate the learys are having sex on the coffee table A- and he just couldn't bring the heat yeah john you know, got in there and they have a chemistry. You've seen them together, you know, offset, onset. They just have a chemistry and they really lucked into finding him when they needed to replace that guy. So, you know, they didn't, they didn't watch that pilot and say, we need John Wesley ship. They simply looked at that pilot and said, that guy is not who we need, got to find somebody else. And I don't know much about the process of searching and finding John, but, you know, thank goodness they found him because, like I said, it made all the difference. And reshooting those scenes uh, was very interesting um, because, you know, D- James was kind of he had never done anything like that before reshooting something that he had just shot a few months prior. And so it was kind of interesting you know, to see him finding his way through that performance a second time. He
0: had to, like, play it differently or he just had a problem getting emotionally back into the same space that he was when he initially shot those scenes.
1: I think that was probably more trying to match what he had done, you know, trying to reach that, that same level. I think that doing anything for the first time, you just do what you're going to do. But when you are handed the job of doing it again, and it's nothing to do with you, obviously they just replace this other actor. Um, Now it becomes, you know, you second guess yourself. Did I do it correctly the first time, et cetera? So yeah, he had he had to play, you know, work his way through that. I don't think Mary Margaret had nearly the same amount of problems, but she'd also been in the business longer and had uh, had done a lot more shows. So she probably even had, you know, somebody replaced at some point, you know, another co-star replaced somewhere along the way. I would think.
0: What's your finest memory of working on the set? Like, do you like have a day that you absolutely love, or a day that you like? like want to like erase from your memory
1: that it was so hard to do? You know? Yeah. I mean, there were, there's a scene. I, I'm terrible about remembering what episode stuff happens in because I generally saw them one time when they aired. Mm-hmm. So there was a scene, I will tell you that one of the, one of the worst days, um, and it had just had to do with the weather. Um, when they're running across the, they're coming away from a party and they're going across a golf course late at night. And I think the sprinklers go off. I had on two layers and Wilmington, when I say so cold, it wasn't 30 below, we're not Alaska, but for here it was cold. And um, I had on two layers. I didn't have to get wet, the actress did. Um, So yeah, that was a kind of a miserable night. So was the night that Abby passed, the character of Abby passed, um, shot out of Wrightsville Beach. I know both of those actresses were miserable, Michelle and and, uh, Monica. Miserable that night because they had to be wet from um, Abby drowning. Poor Monica had to be zipped up in a body bag, loaded on a stretcher. <laughs> yeah, no, that's any fun. <sighs> so that was not a particularly good night. One of the fascinating things about working on the show was the first season; those first thirteen, we shot all thirteen. They were all in the can, and then they started airing. And, and like I said, nobody really knew who these kids were unless you were a big Mighty Ducks fan. So anytime you shoot in Wilmington, you're out on location somewhere you know, on a street or something, somebody will see the cameras on the trucks and everything, and they'll wander up and go, well, oh, what's shooting? And they always hope you're going to say, giant Hollywood film with Sir Anthony Hopkins and Tom Cruise and Harrison Ford and Sigourney Weaver, and, you know, and they're all right there, but that's never the case. So people would wander up and go, what's shooting? and you'd go, oh, it's a show for the WB, and you could already see them blazing over. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a teen drama. Anybody in it? Not really anybody you'd know unless, are you a big Mighty Ducks fan? Oh, I saw one of those, I think. We're done. (laughs) No more problems. They just wander off, be done. So all that first 13 episodes, that's what interacting with the public was like. But then we came back, After that first season, it premiered in January of 98. We came back in the summer of 98 to shoot season two. And that became a whole different ballgame. From that moment until I left the show, we never didn't have fans, people, just crowds everywhere wanting to see these kids. And I remember shooting at the university for the high school. Um, We were actually shooting inside. it wasn't one of the sets at the studio. It was, we're actually at the university and shooting some kind of classroom something there. And it was a very long building. In fact, if you're facing what is the front of Cape Side, um, this building would be the one on the to the right of you as you're facing the building that was the front of Cape Side High. And it's a very long building that forms that quad. And the crowds were so big that we had to take one of the grips and put a jacket over his head and we ran him out the south end to a van and the crowd just went (laughs) down there to get to him. And then we really brought the real actors out the north end of the building to the actual van and took them back to base camp in their trailers. And that's the kind of stuff we had to start doing, which was crazy. When they toured... The uh Virginia, well, I don't know where it's where it was supposed to be in the story, but they went out on a college tour junior or senior year, and they met up with Marla Gibbs, who played Florence on the Jefferson. She was a secretary at the university. Shooting up at that university in Virginia on location, one of the furthest location shoots I ever did at the show, um, those are the biggest crowds we ever had. They walk across the quad on that campus. And literally everywhere that the camera is not looking, there are hundreds or thousands of people all the way around us, surrounding us on all three sides. And our job, in addition to all the normal things that we did to get the show in the can, that day, every time the camera would change positions to catch a closer shot of somebody, we'd have to go over and get all of those looky-loos to move to where the camera wouldn't see them from shot to shot. That was an extraordinary day. Uh, How we kept them quiet, I have no idea, but they they cooperated. I guess they didn't, you know, nobody really wants to spoil their favorite show if they're getting a chance to watch it being shot. So when we asked them to be quiet,
0: they were quiet. I've always wanted to ask this of someone who was there when it happened and you just kind of fell into my lap today. Um, (laughs) What was your feeling when you found out that Kevin was going to depart the show and he was going to leave the show to Greg for the most part. Were you were, were were you thinking like oh my god we're going to sink or were you thinking it's going to be okay?
1: Yeah that's a good that's a good point. It a change in the writing staff doesn't affect my job, doesn't affect the grips and electrics unless as you said the change in the writing sinks the show and the show gets canceled. So we did have those concerns when we heard he was leaving. And, and we find this out, by the way, it wasn't like they make a point to reach out to us and say, you know, you worked on the show. By the way, Kevin's leaving. You know, we got it when we came to work, like after he had left. That, yeah, that's how we found out. Now, when I say we, I'm talking about the crew. Uh, of course, the actors knew. And I will tell you that um, the actors were not thrilled, and some even less than others, uh, about the loss of Kevin. Um, because they didn't know wh- what was going to happen to the show and if their characters were going to be written correctly, as they had already come to believe they should be. And so there was a lot of um, cross-country phone calls going on. with, um, Because the writing staff stayed out in Los Angeles. Usually, especially when somebody got a script um, okayed and they wrote it, they would often get a trip to Wilmington to come and watch it being shot. We didn't, we weren't a party to pre-production, scripts, writing, rewriting, all of that. That was happening way over there. And then we weren't party to post-production, which is when the music gets laid in and they find all those great songs and the editing and all of that. And why, you know, uh, episodes, the WB gave them like, you know, 42 minutes and 13 seconds. And I mean, the show could not run one frame longer than that. So if an actor talked a little slower, you know, they you might get dialogue clipped out. You might lose the tail end of a scene. You might lose a scene uh because it had to hit that exact amount of time. And so that was um those decisions, sometimes you would there'd be something happen on set and uh, there'd be a funny line or even an ad lib or whatever, something, some little something. Not that ad lib happened very much, but every once in a while somebody would sneak a little something in. And then you'd watch the episode months later gone it's not there and it's that you know so we were never privy to any of that sort of thing so we were there for the the nuts and bolts of the shooting that reminds me though of one story you know the kerfuffle with all of the theme songs they um they wanted Alanis Morissette a uh, hand in my pocket they wanted that but the deal wasn't going through with her people and so when they sent out, they would send the edited episodes to the actors on VHS cassettes. And, I mean, everybody got one. Um, and they sent, I don't know that it didn't go on for the entirety of the run of the show, but we were only really rabid about it uh, when they were first sending the first few because it was our first chance to see the show. And I got to borrow all of the So I was, I saw the shows before, um, before, you know, they aired. And what they had done was on the on the pilot, they stuck Hand in My Pocket in as the theme with the credit sequence that you know and love. And the second episode had I Don't Want to Wake by Paula Cole. And the third episode had <sighs> Barely Breathing by Duncan Sheik. And I got to tell you, that one's not out there. You can't find that one on YouTube where somebody has put the song to the credits. But it worked best of all three, in my opinion. And he's talking about how life is kind of overwhelming to him. I'm barely breathing. I thought it was the most marvelous choice. I was like, please. And then we got I Don't Want to Wait. Not to say that's not a wonderful song. And Paula Cole's a very nice lady. But if, if you ever get a chance, if you have any editing ability, throw a version of Barely Breathing onto the credit sequence and just watch it and see what you think.
0: But that's amazing that they had like three different, because I knew about Hand in My Pocket, I knew about I Don't Want to Wait because that's the one that ended up getting used, but I didn't know about Barely Breathing. I had no idea that there was a third song that they were looking
1: at. And weirdly, not, uh, at least not that I ever saw, any tapes ever came out with Run Like Mad by Jan Arden, which is the European version and the one that was on Netflix for a long time, although I think they've put I don't want to wait back on
0: it. Yeah, actually um but what they've what they've done on Netflix is really dumb. Uh well in my opinion they they had um Paula Cole re-record <laughs> I don't want to wait. I heard and that. it's like and it's like look, I love Paula Cole cuz I love the song, but her voice has changed. And it doesn't oh, sound wow. the same. Okay. <laughs> it does but 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 anyway, when I want to watch The Creek, I got my my uh my DVDs here and they're they're just great. Oh,
1: so. there you go. You're a big music fan, obviously, then.
0: Yes, I am. Yeah.
1: Here's the here's my favorite story about the serendipity of finding the right song for a scene. We were shooting. Uh, this is Pacey's birthday around the marina. That episode early. Third, yeah. fourth episode, fifth, I don't know, somewhere but pretty early. And we were shooting at a marina. And the owner of that marina, by the way, uh, <laughs> was not a nice guy. And uh, through a series of misadventures, ended up kicking us out. And that's why that marina only ever shows up one time because we didn't try to go back after that. But we were shooting there, and it was a combination because you know they keep going back to that marina all through that one episode. And they're there in the day, and they're there in the night. So we were there on a Friday, and we started at like one, and we were going to go until probably dawn. One of those long days because we needed day scenes and night scenes, and. Um, it got to be about two or three in the morning and we had to do the scene where um, James and Katie have a moment out there on the dock. I don't know, the kiss actually. Is this season two? Maybe I'm thinking season
0: two. Well, they kissed in the in the first episode of season two. And if it's the scene I'm thinking about, it's the one where they're on the dock and it's raining hard and they're all
1: wet. Right, that is the scene. That's no, it, it is season two, That's sorry, it. okay. Yeah because I was like, wait, they didn't kiss till the end of season one. Um, okay, well, um, that rain came in as a misting rain and the director of photography hit it for as long as he could, he finagled the lights so that you couldn't see it on film. And then finally it started, it was coming down heavier. It was still just a misting rain, it wasn't drops, but it was that just constant, you know, light mist. He said, I can't hide it anymore. And at that point they had to they kind of stop for a minute and they said well we either continue and let it be seen or we wrap but they they didn't want to come back to this place already they could this guy had already been in trouble and so they were like we we need to get what we get while we're here and uh you know be done with this place so they made the decision to keep shooting well they shot the scene you've seen it the, all of that rain They didn't have time to bring effects in. So all that rain you're seeing, it's real, which is unusual. Usually it's controlled by Mm -hmm. effects. Who could have known that it was going to come down and look so beautiful in the visuals? And then they found that song, Kiss the Rain. My gosh, what a perfect song. It's so good. Yeah, it's amazing. And I don't think it's on some of the versions. Like if you watch it on Netflix, I'm not sure that song is there. There is a
0: really, really passionate group of Dawson's Creek fans who are going in and they're reinserting all the original music from the original broadcast. And they're going to, and eventually they're going to, I guess, put out fan cuts of the seasons with all the original music put back.
1: Oh, good for them. Yeah. It's, it's sad when those those perfect songs get uh, replaced by generic music. And it's funny how of all of the things in entertainment, music rights are the, the biggest bear. They can prevent shows from, even being released on DVD for example you'll never see cold case because yeah. they used old classic rock and old music all throughout that show and they could never clear it all and and it would completely take the tone of the show away so you'll never see that there was a show called the good guys Bradley Whitford and Colin Hanks classic rock you'll never see it on DVD mm-hmm. Might stream place again all those you know you can do it here but if we do it there we'll lose all the money kind of thing
0: no, if they stream it somewhere, what they'll do or what they often do is they'll stream it on a platform and then they'll insert different music. Mm. And then and then like the intention of the scene, the attention of the scene that they take that original piece of music out from isn't the same because they chose right. a piece of music that doesn't fit. Yeah. Um, like, for example, uh, the first TV show to really use like like really popular music, at least in my understanding, is Miami Vice. Miami Vice was the first TV show to say, oh my God, they, they're going to use popular music on a TV show. And ever since then, it's been a hell of a time for anybody to get the rights to anything popular music. That's why these days, like all the good TV shows just use natural score. Yeah. Now I'm now, not, now I'm not going to complain because I, I love score. So I'm not going to complain, but there's something about Dawson's Creek. There's something about Felicity. There's something about Buffy that they used songs of the day and those songs bring something to the to the scenes that they were used in.
1: Which and, is... and Dawson's even used local Wilmington bands for a few of the songs here and there. Oh, that's um, awesome. I don't know if you were watching in the original airings, but when they were on the WB very first you know, each time a new episode aired, at the tail end, the narrator would always say, Featured in tonight's episode, music by a couple of the Wilmington bands got some exposure, and you know they couldn't; their personalities were not such that they could stay together. But um, oh, wow, they got some notoriety out of it and got a little run of you know, kind of like that thing you do—that uh, movie, *The, the Wonders*. It's their
0: like, <laughs> no, it's funny you—it's funny you mentioned that because I was just watching that movie last night. Oh, I really? Loved that. Oh. I love that movie. So it's the, an empire
1: records reunion too with yeah it is and, it is. Uh, and live I, yeah
0: I, I love it um oh, crap i i was not i i was not fortunate enough to watch the show when it initially aired but i discovered the show after like the first week after i graduated high school okay. i watched the show and it changed the course of my life that show made me want to become a screenplay writer wow I don't know That show First, just spoke to me in, um, in a very specific
1: way. Anything that was on the WB, uh, our kids had a, rea- uh, a connection to because they would take them out to Los Angeles and shoot those promos. So they all got to know each other. They were out there for a promo, all four kids. This is probably between season one and two, before Kerr and Meredith really got going. I don't think they were a part of this. But they were out there shooting something. Um, and <laughs> James went was sitting in the makeup chair there, wherever they were shooting this in Los Angeles. And at the time, the WB apparently had a show that starred Scott Bayo, who was going to be uh, on a new show on the WB, a sitcom, I have no doubt. And so he was there at this thing. It was a big WB thing. And he wanders into the makeup room, and apparently he's in a bad mood. And he sees James and for whatever reason, thinks James is the makeup guy and starts like kind of snapping at him about, you know, do this, do that or whatever. James is like, ah, no, sorry, I'm not really the makeup guy. And he walks out. He's like, I- I'm just going to get away from this kind of crazy Scott Bayo. So he walks out and goes and finds the other three. And uh, they go, were you just in the makeup room? And he goes, yeah, and Chachi's in there and he's pissed. And he turned around, and Scott was standing there. Scott was standing there, and all four just kind of went, tur, 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 just went away and let let Scott rage about whatever he was upset about that day.
0: Out of the core group of actors, being James, uh, Michelle, and Katie, which one was your uh, and Josh? I can't I can't believe I forgot Josh. Um, which one Which one was your favorite to deal with, and who was the? easiest to get along with I'm sure they I'm, I'm sure they all were great, but still
1: they all were um I will tell you, but you have to promise not to tell the others
0: no I'm not...
1: my Michelita was my favorite. okay uh, hands down. Um, I adore that woman I would walk across broken glass for to this okay. day. Okay. Um, I liked everybody again, that's not saying anybody else wasn't fine and great, good whatever. But there was a special connection there, um, you know. Katie was shy. Katie was a 18 year old girl from Ohio when we started. Um, the overwhelming the fame thing hit her, and she kind of withdrew. She threw in. Mm-hmm. Um, James. James was. Um, he was always very wanting the writing to be really good and things. So he had concerns that I don't think the others took to heart. Um, and so he had kind of his own thing going on, especially season two and going into season three, trying to do everything he could to make the show as good as he could with whatever he could do from this coast to that coast with the writing and, and all of that. Um, Josh was even keeled through the entire thing. Um, he was, a, he was the pro of the bunch. Um, he'd been in the business the longest. So he was my go-to guy. When we went out, we would go out on location anywhere. It was always a great thing if Josh was involved in the shooting because if we had too many looky-loos and we wanted to get them calmed down a bit, he was always willing to go out and work the crowd and sign autographs and chat with people. Always. There may have been some kind of a scene somewhere along the way in the four years where I didn't approach him for it because he was doing something super heavy and we were on location somewhere. But if that happened once, maybe twice, every other time we were out on location and look at how much of that show, I mean, there's a lot shot at, at the studio where we had total control, but all those exteriors, you know, we're at the university, we're downtown, we're in Southport, we're here, we're there, right to beach carolina beach we're everywhere and um like i said they were always season two three and four hundreds dozens thousands i don't know lots and lots of people watching and so like i said to have somebody you could just go josh can you go work the crowd and that's literally all i would have to say to him and he'd be like where are they and point me where you want me and then and then the great thing about that was uh one of the the things that i can admit these days um he and I had a bit of a code thing when he got tired when he had enough, when he'd done as much as, you know, he wanted to do. Um, I don't remember what he would say, but there was something he would say very innocuously. Um, uh, and that was my cue. And then I had to play the bad guy because he didn't want to play the bad guy and who, who would blame him. You know? So I would then say, well, that's it. We got to take Josh back to makeup or, you know, getting back to the set or whatever and, and bust that up. And, um, you know the girls weren't comfortable doing that um they both had problems with stalkers uh and and guys were just creepy you know <laughs> and girls were creepy um yeah a lot of a lot of people for some reason because they were girls because they were female there was like this they would walk up and tell me stories these these fans would come up and tell me these long drawn out stories about how they were quite sure that they had made a connection by watching these girls oh. on the screen. And if they oh. could just get in front of them and talk with them for a few minutes, you know, oh. it was going to be the greatest friendship in the history of, of people knowing each other. That's really creepy. Yeah, and so, you know, a little bit of that goes a long way when you're a young actress. So they didn't do nearly as much of that. I didn't ask them to. Um, every once in a blue moon, they couldn't, you know... It, almost had to happen because they were moving around and the crowds were right there, so a little bit. And then James, like I said, James was often, um, and I'm not telling tales out of school, um, James has, has battled dyslexia. And so reading a script and signing autographs were two things that were, I mean, he did it like a champ. He wasn't my go-to. Um, Kerr, once Kerr and Meredith joined us, Kerr was real good. Meredith was yet another female, a little more reticent. Although I was walking Meredith to set, we were downtown on front street and we were crossing market. Uh, I I remember (laughs) to this day and somebody stopped her and said, you're Andy. And she said, yeah, that's who I play on Dawson's Creek or something like that. And she said, can I get your autograph? And Meredith said, oh my God, this is my first autograph. And she signed it for the for whoever that, you know, the fan. And, but all of those kids were great. But the things that I've just spoken about, you know, m- made my interactions with them. You know, you, it's person to person. Mm-hmm. You know, Katie, she's shy. so go to her a certain way. Um, Michelle had that connection, you know, could knock on her door and just, you know. She got, she signed real, elaborately early on and then later she developed a signature that became an m with a squiggle and a w with a squiggle and i called that her mowa no, uh, that was that was our code phrase like i would because i would get stacks of photographs from the office and they would be you know have all kids whether it was four or six sign these and sometimes it was to somebody It was you know sign them all to bobby and other times it was just generic signatures. And, um, and I would take the stack and knock on Michelle's door and go, can you mowa these? You know, that kind of um, interaction was, that's why she and I have that special connection to that level. Um, John and Mary Margaret were great about meeting the fans. Um, Nina very seldom ever shot anywhere but the Potter house and the Potter house was very controlled. It was almost as controlled as the studio in that it was isolated off of the main road was over there. And then you went up a side road and then you still had to like go through some woods to get to that house. And, and so nobody wandered up. The closest they could get was out on that side street. And so sometimes they would be around there around base camp where the trailers were. Um, but they couldn't make it in there. So she very seldom ever interacted. Um, gosh, I can't even think. I know she's seen somewhere else. I know she's seen at the high school or something at some point. But um, I'd say ninety-five percent of her scenes are at that house.
0: Uh, you you mentioned that after Kevin left, um, James was sort of like the was like the sort of the the, the keeper of the, the the scroll of the show. Like he was very concerned with dialogue and character motivation and all this stuff now for my money i was very disappointed when kevin left the show obviously because he's my guy but for my money i thought that greg did the best he could i thought i i thought that greg did a great job now i now if if kevin would have stuck around maybe he would have done something different here or something different here but for the most part i thought greg did a great job
1: to agree, yeah, I, I don't think the show could have ended up in any better hands than his. And I think that there was an interim period before Greg, I think Greg was writing for the show, but he hadn't yet become the showrunner. Um, and I don't remember who was in charge at the time, but I can tell you that the what was going on was the Eve storyline at the beginning of season three, the much maligned Eve storyline, and that <laughs> one went over so poorly. Poor Brittany Daniel, one of the sweetest girls on the planet, Um, just an absolute sweetheart, Um, you know, basically gets fired because Mm -hmm. the fan reaction to her character of Eve is so negative, and the writing and producing staff, oh, oh, well, we made a mistake. And so there was supposed to be an extended storyline with her being Jen's sister, Graham's knowing, and... Mm -hmm. That's even why her name is Eve, because it was short for Evelyn, which is Graham's name, because she was named after her and all of this. And it was going to culminate in mom showing up from New York. And instead, they cut their losses. And basically, you know, they, I'm not sure how they handled letting Brittany know, but I know she was devastated that she lost the job. And it was through no fault of her. She was playing the role well. just nobody liked how that role was written. And so all of a sudden there was a scene jammed into one of the episodes where James and Josh are coming back from the bus station. Oh, well, you know, glad we could get Eve on that bus. Okay. Let's go on with our lives. (laughs) And that was the end of the Eve storyline. And I think that was, you know, sometime just shortly after that, I think Greg kind of took over and it definitely eased James's angst over those scripts when Greg, um, was running the show for sure
0: no because i i I remember seeing a video of greg on a beach somewhere i don't know whether he was on la or he was in wilmington i don't know if you posted it or if someone else did but he was reading a script and he said i'm gonna i'm reading the script to see if it's dawson's quake worthy and i think it was like a i think it was like a spec script and he just laid there and he read it (laughs) and i thought that he really did a good job of getting the voice of Kevin's characters. He did a he did a wonderful job at that. I mean, sure, yeah. sure, they're going to sound a little different because Kevin's not directly writing them, but he got the spirit
1: of Kevin's characters down pat. Here's another writing thing that you may not know. Um, they put out a series of paperback books based on the show. There are, I don't know, 15 or 16 of them, I think. I do not know. That. And, um... They were coming out of the Los Angeles office and some two of the people there. And I think they may have been like writer's assistants getting coffee, but they somehow pitched one of those books and were allowed to write it, wrote the book. And the book came out well enough that somebody on the producing staff let them pitch a script and they ended up writing. And I think, I'm not going to remember their names. It was a writing duo. It was two women and they wrote, I don't think they wrote, you know, an entire season, but they wrote a handful of episodes across probably season three or four. Wow. That's uh, amazing! But yeah, I mean, what a, what a way to work your way in.
0: Yeah. What a stroke uh, of luck.
1: Yeah. Um, and and they caught those voices, you know, in the same way, in a novel form enough that they said, well, you probably do this in a script form.
0: Besides Dawson's Creek, because I have a, I have a idea that Dawson's Creek is like, pretty close to the maybe the highlight of your career or have you worked on other things that you've that you've liked more than that?
1: Well, four years of work is you know that's a heck of a run um, mm-hmm. so that was very nice and to kind of know coming off of the season as soon as you heard it was picked up which I think we often knew before the season it ended that we were coming back for the next season. And there was no reason to believe you know we weren't going to be coming back each time and you know that proved true. But um, you know, I did. I haven't worked. On, I didn't work on a lot of things that were super high quality. I've not worked on anything that's won an Oscar. But I did a Stephen King movie, The Night Flyer. I did. Um, I did something with Shannon Doherty, which was an experience. I did Empire Records, which is highly regarded, and that's that's one of my highlights too, for sure. I did the pilot for Touch by an Angel. Um, I got to work with Roma Downey and Della Reese. Uh, the series went out to Salt Lake City and they and they retooled it completely so what we shot and you never saw it you didn't see one frame of it because uh, they didn't like weirdly uh, the network liked the pilot but then that when they saw it they like they didn't like the pilot I don't know, it was weird but um, but that was a highlight because Roma Downey remains one of my favorite people I ever worked with one of the sweetest nicest women another woman I would walk across broken glass to this day um, so, yeah, I mean, Dawson's is certainly a highlight, but I, I did a series uh, for CBS called American Gothic that has a pretty fervent fan, uh, fan base, uh, Gary Cole and uh, Paige Turco and Lucas Black. Uh, only ran one season, Supernatural Southern Gothic um, drama, heck of a show, too. So, yeah, Dawson's got to certainly be up there just for the four seasons and the uh, seventy nine episodes I worked on.
0: I was really shocked to hear that you worked on the uh, Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> yeah. Because when I was a kid, I loved Mario Brothers. And when the movie came out, I was like, this movie is the best movie ever. Again, I was a kid.
1: Well, here, here's some factoids you might like. The uh, You remember the rave episode of Dawson's? Uh, I think there's only one. And it's yeah. around some kind of a big industrial looking area. Yeah exactly where that rave is set in that episode is where dino hat was built for super mario brother's the oh my exact god. same space yeah oh my god yeah that, and awesome. uh, and then weirdly this isn't as connected but it's just a weird factoid the two gentlemen of Capeside storm boat sequence was shot in a tank directly behind that same spot there at the oh, same wow. at the cement plant mm-hmm where they rigged up all the effects to safely shoot the storm sequence with the boats. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, just crazy that those would be in the same spot, but yeah, that set, uh, that film, you know, nobody likes Super Mario brothers except the kids who you know saw it when they were kids, not a highly regarded film, but um, what an experience to walk onto that set and what you saw, I mean, this was, there are a few computer effects in that movie, but not, you know, now everything would be in front of a green screen, and the and Dino Hatton would just be a, in a pixels in a computer. But that was a physical set that you know, hundred yards. I don't know how long it was, but it went on, and it was four levels and most extraordinary set I've ever been on, without a doubt. Wow. And um, you know, the bar when they go into the Boom Boom Bar, that wasn't another set somewhere else. It was literally where the Boom Boom Bar was there in, and they just built it right inside that space and so yeah, I mean that film. Uh, watching Yoshi, the, the dinosaur uh, animatronic figure, no CGI. Uh, the only CGI they did was erasing the wires that come out of his tail, because he had all these cables that worked him. That you know, sucker stood there on set and was physically moving, and they the, they liked you to interact with him because they gave them more practice working all of these levers and everything to make him you know do what you wanted. So if you talked to him, they just loved that and they would have him react to you wink at you and stuff so you know all of that i mean the illusion of those things those sets and the sequence i did on a movie called radio land murders which was a 10 million dollar exercise by george lucas to see if he could shoot movies in one place and then digitally squirt the footage instead of while waiting for the film to make its way out if they could send the footage digitally because he was all about digital and it, it, what it was it was a $10 million experiment that allowed him to gear up the Star Wars prequels. So the movies that came out in 97, 99, and 2002 were built off of the bones of this movie. And it's called Radio Land Murders. It had been written in the early 70s by the people who wrote American Graffiti. And he literally pulled it out of his desk and, and said, slap $10 million on that and let's make that. And it's got an incredible cast. Nobody really knows it, but um, what an incredible experience. I worked directly under George Lucas on second unit on Radio Land Murders. So, you know, as a film buff, yeah, just absolutely extraordinary. And watching him have a reunion with Candy Clark and Bo Hopkins from American Graffiti, he brought them in in cameos in Radio Land Murders and watched the three of them. They hadn't seen each other since probably 72, wow. three, whenever that was.
0: I mean, say what you want about George Lucas, but that man has done so much for the film industry. It's him and James Cameron, in my mind, because Industrial Light & Magic and Lightstorm Entertainment are just two companies that have been at the forefront as far as technology is concerned in the industry, at least in my mind. Yeah, Um,
1: DHX sound systems and all of that. Yeah,
0: man, it's crazy. But it's crazy that George Lucas would have said, take something so I could just test it out for something else. It was crazy that he would throw that amount of money as something that he I mean, was he really passionate about the you would, I mean, he was like passionate about the film, right? He didn't just do it because
1: No, it was, it was all he cared about was that experimental stuff that he was doing Offset, He only okay. directed second unit. See so yeah, this is all, it's, it's amazing. We didn't know it at the time. None of this was coming out. It was only after the Star Wars movies had come out that it all became clear. But he laid out $10 million just to practice for what was going to be the Star Wars prequels. And he directed second unit just so he could get the feel of being back in the director's chair so he could direct the Star Wars prequels. Okay. And so was he passionate about it? No. But you know who were, was passionate was this, the production designer who built a radio station set across all of the sound stages in at, at the studio. Mm-hmm. And the cast, I mean – that movie's got everybody in it, and um, it, it was it was so much fun because you'd come to work and literally like go to one of the other PAs and say, "Who's working today?" Oh, uh, we got Bobcat Goldthwaite and we've got uh, Lady from Coach, and we've got you know George Burns, and we've got I worked on George Burns' last movie. Um, I worked you know Billy Barty's in that movie. Just this cast is extraordinary, and like I said, that it bombed. He didn't care. He laid out that ten million dollars. He got what he wanted from the experimental part of it, and he made those Star Wars prequels, and you know, which was another uh, license to print money for him, basically. Right, right, right. right.
0: And then he right. sells
1: the, the franchise for four billion dollars. So
0: yeah, yeah, but the yeah, but the brilliant thing about George Lucas is when he uh, initially made Star Wars in seventy seven, nobody thought it was going to be shit, so he kept all the rights.
1: Yes, so the fact that, clever, clever man.
0: Yeah, yeah. So the fact that he kept all the rights, the him keeping the rights helped him build his empire.
1: Absolutely.
0: No, but I guess he must have had like intuition that it could work. Yeah. What advice would you give to someone who wants to come up in the business in your position? What advice would you give to them? What would you tell them to sort of avoid some of the holes that you have may have fallen into in your career?
1: What? Well, one of the things I'm seeing of people of late is nobody wants to start at the bottom anymore. They all want to be a writer, a producer, a director. And that's fine if you can engineer an entire shoot and make something of value, by all means. But there is there is value to be had in, in starting at the bottom and working your way up. And um, so be willing to work for free. A time or two, but don't do it forever. Um, you know, intern if they'll let you. Sweep the floors, pick up the garbage, do whatever they want you to do. Get your foot in the door, and then show them what you're capable of. I was helping the caterer on Amos and Andrew, that first film I talked about, set up the salad bar for the crew lunch and that was when Cindy, seeing me help out rather than sitting on my butt reading a book or whatever, you know, told her caterer, her boyfriend, I'm going to hire him on my next movie because I had to get up and go to, to be doing something positive and helpful without getting in anybody's way. So look for those opportunities. It is, I don't care how much people tell you um, they say this thing and the truth of it is beyond what you could even possibly conceive. It is who you know in the business. If you can make a contact of any kind, you will continue to work as long as they continue to work. And that's the thing is you've got to attach your little red wagon to the right people so that they can keep hiring. You. Um, I had a couple of setbacks, which is part of the reason I left Austin and part of the reason that I don't do this as a steady job anymore. Um, because people that I thought were, were going to be my person to you know keep moving up with uh, one of them moved back home to Italy and uh, so that I wasn't going to Italy so I was out there and one of the other major ones um, got out of the business and she teaches college now and so in both cases through you know no real fault of my own they looked like certainly viable people to kind of work with but they made life choices that took them out of the, the mix for me so you know be prepared to shift on a moment's notice in, in cases like that so that you don't uh, get stuck with somebody who's not going to help you keep moving forward. But take any job you can take. Movies are made everywhere now. There are indie film shooting constantly. It wasn't the case when I got started. Like had to move to one of those places I mentioned. Um, do anything you can do and pitch in in any way you can. Get extra work. That'll get you on a set. That's how I did it. Um, and just be prepared to work your tail off. And if they see you working your tail off, they'll hire you again. That's the biggest advice I can give.
0: Hitching your wagon to to people that you knew. But were you cognizant of that? Were you cognizant of the possibility that one day your wagons were, were going to get unhitched, uh, unhitched and you were going to have to sort of keep climbing the hill by yourself?
1: No, i I thought um, I thought that my contact, who eventually moved to Italy, was going to be, you know, she was going to keep moving up, and she was going to take me. I would always be a step or two behind her. Mm-hmm. But when you know she was a second, second, and a second uh, assistant director, when she was hiring me, and she had just started doing some first AD jobs, and then she didn't. I don't know. She she just upped and left the United States and went back to Italy, which is where she was from. And she worked like a devil over there. She ended up directing. So you see, I I had the right person in that she ended up moving up continually, but she just did it on another continent. It it was obvious um, when when she left the second show and I was there with who took over the job and I didn't already have that connection with them. And it was a little weird um, trying to finish that out and um nepotism plays a part i was once hired on a show called the road home it was a cbs series nobody knows it we only ran six episodes before it was canceled but um great cast and um there were seven pas which is an extraordinarily large amount american gothic had one official me and they were day players it was a weird situation but anyway um yeah seven on the road home and by the end of the first week like Wednesday Thursday there are the, the scuttlebutts going around amongst the crew there's no way they're keeping all seven of these pKs well I went and grabbed the call sheet and <laughs> I looked here's me here's Bob Smith oh wait there's a Smith producer oh wait here's Pete Jones oh there's a Jones producer
0: oh my God oh, wait
1: there's Todd Applegate. Oh, wait, there's an Applegate producer. Every one of those other PAs was related to one of the producers. The writing was on the wall. Uh, thankfully, I, uh, I was able to jump ship, and that, that's when I made the move to Radioland Murders. But, um, but yeah, never count out nepotism uh, when somebody's son, daughter, nephew, niece is working. Um, you know, get out of their way.
0: What was it like to work with Kevin Williamson? Because I imagine that he's, he seems like a wonderful individual, and I just want to hear some stories that you have about him, if you have any stories.
1: Well, he is, he's but he's quiet. He and That's why he and Katie have the uh, such a great connection, and always have, is because they're both quiet, shy, reserved people. So he was not, you know, on set with a lampshade on his head, you know, oh, I'm crazy. You know, he was... Um, quietly in his chair, watching everything going on. Now he wasn't there with us all the time either because he was part of that writing staff. So he was with us, he was around for that first run for probably at that whole first like 10 days of shooting, maybe the next episode or two. But after that, he had to get back out to LA to kind of marshal the, the writing staff because again, they were housed out there. So he came back several times and, uh, you know, you see him in some of the behind the scenes videos that Mary Margaret uh, puts out in a lot of the pictures she posts. Um, He tended to stay. He wasn't there with the nuts and bolts crew as much as he was the actors because he wanted, they had a connection. They're, they're saying his words. He's providing them the dialogue they're speaking. And so that was, you know, an automatic connection and they kind of stuck together more than him hanging out with the Grips and Electrics and the production assistants mm-hmm. so every interaction I ever had with him was very pleasant he's a very nice man uh, I have nothing but praise for him super talented guy mm-hmm. um, thrilled that they brought an, you know the fifth screen movie here to Wilmington and shot it here um, with people who were crew on Dawson's
0: by the way you didn't actually think about working on the new screen film did you?
1: The thought crossed my mind. I would love to have been on a horror film, but um, and the Halloween sequel shot here as well. That was during the depth of the COVID thing. I did a horror short that was around parts of the COVID. And what we were doing with our tiny little five-person crew was nearly impossible. So I couldn't imagine trying to do that around COVID with a hundred-person crew. So no, I didn't seriously try. I wanted to visit, but COVID also prevented that because I knew people on every one of those sets. And uh, this is kind of a funny story. This is I wasn't working on the show, but uh, the show Eastbound and Down, the HBO series, Kenny Powers, um, Danny McBride, like Kenny Powers was shooting here in town. And I happened to see the trucks, I had no idea that it was Eastbound and Down. I just saw production trucks and I said, Well, oh, I think I'll just stop. I was coming home and it was like, ah, I've got nothing else to do. I'll stop in and just see who, if I know anybody. Well, I stopped it off and I saw one of the Teamsters and they were like, Oh my gosh, Craig. And you know, we had a nice reunion and chatted for a bit. And then they said, Oh, hey, come here, so and so needs to see you. And that was they took me like halfway to set. And I see some who remember, oh, Craig, and I have a nice reunion with them. And then they go, Oh, wait a minute, the camera guy needs to see you. I ended up like Kenny Powers was doing a scene, like I could have thrown something at him i was standing right next to camera by the end and they just kept taking me closer and closer And it was wonderful uh to be received like that wow. now i can get that kind of reception on any set pretty much here in town because there's almost always somebody working that i worked with you know all those years ago mm-hmm. um unless covid unless a worldwide pandemic you know shuts down any guests coming to set the last set i was able to visit was swamp thing and. Um, they actually took over the university, which was Capeside High, but they were using an interior as the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC out of Atlanta. Yeah, they had rebuilt yeah. it as CDC. And um, they did an Easter egg by having Adrian Barbeau, who had starred in the original Swamp Thing movie in 82, yeah. came in yeah. and did a role playing a CDC scientist or doctor or something. Mm-hmm. So I went to visit the set because I knew the makeup guys, and I wanted to meet Adrian Barbeau, So and I got to which wonderful shoes very nice lady um so yeah i mean you know it, it, without pandemics i can i can get on a set and and i knew the first ad when i got there it was my old buddy rudy that i'd worked on several shows with um he's also directing now ran into him um i inv- i invade sets all the time i invaded a set of a national lampoon movie in greensboro north carolina i'd heard it was shooting at a local country club and when i got there it just turned out that rudy was the first ad so, again, I had a total connection and ended up right in the room with, with uh, the legendary director, Arthur Hiller. So, yeah, you know, um, just wander up to set and see who you know. Mm. So, I'm hoping, uh, I was hoping Halloween Ends was going to shoot here, but they took it to Savannah. It's already wrapped, so I didn't have an opportunity to visit that set. Okay. And I couldn't visit Kills or Scream, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. And um, uh, Wilson uh, also
1: brought a movie, I think, called The Black Phone here, uh, which is coming out in Jul- uh, June. But isn't that a
0: isn't isn't that um, a Jason Blum production? The Black Film. I may be wrong.
1: It's he did some horror film. Oh no, his had Russell Crowe in it, and I'm forgetting the name of it.
0: Oh, um, okay. Because Kevin, I I do know that Kevin has two projects coming out. He has one with Julie that I'm very excited about, and then he has another one that he hasn't told me that he hasn't said anything about
1: yet. That must be the Russell Crowe horror movie then. Uh, which shot here, right before okay. that? Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, ooh, I'm very interested to see what that because because he did mention that he has two series. So he's working on the one with Julie, but he did mention that he's directing one. So I think that's so I think that's the Russell one then.
1: I think. Well, the Russell one's a movie, and it's uh, and and Kevin is a producer on it, and may have had a hand in the writing, kind of like Scream, where okay. he's definitely in it as a producer for sure. Okay. I wish I knew more about it. Uh, I think. Cool. Pro plays a father and his daughter gets hooked up with something horrific, bad, supernatural, something. Oh
0: yeah. Because I do know that I, I just short story. I do know that Kevin wrote a a short um, horror film called sick during the pandemic. I don't know if, Hmm. I don't know if it's that. Is there any place where the good folks can find you if they want to interact with you or ask you any questions about some of the things that you've done in your career?
1: well i'm i'm on social media instagram's a great place to interact because that's about all i post there is stuff from my uh, film career and a lot of dawson stuff goes up there um mary margaret invited me to instagram personally um and i've been surprised at how often i turn up in stuff that she had shot that she releases Mm -hmm. um there's a very nice video of me and the uh, some of the cast around a couch um that was pulled out so the camera could get into there for a weekend in the country episode, and they opened Potter b and mm-hmm. um, So yeah, follow me on Instagram. Uh, I'm on uh, Facebook. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm part of a Dawson's group on there called Dawson's Creek Obsessed. Uh, if anybody same kind of stuff gets posted there, but I often I'll answer questions there when people post things, and I post. Script pages and sides and call sheets and things there as well, but stuff that hasn't made it onto Instagram yet. So there is a little bonus to joining the Dawson's Creek Obsessed group on Facebook. Um, so those are the two places I would say if you're a Dawson's fan and you want to know more about my interactions with that show, those would be the two ways to do it.
0: Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate
1: it. You're very welcome. Have a good evening.
0: All right, guys, that'll do it for yet another edition of the red wall podcast episode number 97 entitled the crew member as always i've been your host my name is marcelo nestroza and before you go today if you could do me a favor if you like anything i do here i would appreciate a comment a like or subscribe on whatever podcast service you happen to be listening to me on at this very point in time but until next time as always, I'll see you when I see you. The Renwall podcast is a Balloonhead Productions presentation.